Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 171. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 71 through 74 and follow with some thoughts about praising potentates. Psalm 71 finds the poet in desperate straits, but with a positive outlook. Quote, My God, free me from the hand of the wicked, from the grip of the wicked and the violent. For you are my hope, Master, O Lord, my refuge since youth. Upon you I relied from birth. From my mother's womb you brought me out. To you is my praise always. But there is a moment of hesitation as the poet speaks with the voice of an aging man, one who still pursued fears that he will falter, as will his rescuer, and fall into enemy hands. Quote, do not fling me away in old age as my strength fails. Do not forsake me. One trick is to tell them stories that don't go anywhere. The poet also speaks from a place of hope and, dare I say, security. He does this because his current conditions are dire, but in the past... God came to his rescue, and his faith has been unwavering, so he is confident that God will rescue him again. Quote, As for me, I shall always hope and add to all your praise. My mouth will recount your bounty all day long, your rescue, for I know not numbers. Psalm 72 is a psalm for Solomon, and its tone reflects that it is magisterial and filled with soaring language and imagery befitting a king, especially since kings expect flowery praise and heartfelt wishes. Here's a sample from the opening verses. Quote, God, grant your judgments to the king and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people righteously and your lowly ones in justice. May the mountains bear peace to the people and the hills righteousness. May he bring justice to the lowly of the people, may he rescue the sons of the needy and crush the oppressor. Instead of closing the psalm praising the king, the poet drops his usual doxology or formulaic praise to God, quote, blessed is the Lord God, Israel's God, performing wonders alone, and blessed is his glory forever, and may his glory fill all the earth, amen and amen. The prayers of David, son of Jesse, are ended. This doxology is not as much out of place, but signaling a larger editorial move. It marks the conclusion of the second book of Psalms. Psalm 73 begins book three of five with the poet in a troubled state. His crisis, though, is more existential as reality clashes with his faith. Quote, I saw the wicked's well-being, for they are free of the fetters of death and their body is healthy. Of the torment of man they have no part and they know not human afflictions. This reality no doubt has an impact on the mindset of the faithful, quote, and they say, how could God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Look, such are wicked. The ever complacent ones pile up wealth, but in vain have I kept my heart pure and in innocence wash my palms for I was afflicted all day long and my chastisement each new morning. To this, the poet has one answer, quote, yes, you set them on slippery ground, brought them down to destruction, how they come to ruin in a moment, swept away, taken in terrors. In other words, the wicked succeed, but their success is fleeting. Until then, like Eov in the book of Job, he holds true to God, quote, yet I was always with you. You grasped my right hand. You guided me with your counsel and toward glory you took me. No spoilers, but we all know how it turned out with Eov, and if you don't, stay tuned to episodes 191 through 201. 
Psalm 74 shifts from the first-person singular to first-person plural, adopting the perspective of the people who complain bitterly about their fate, a fate so harsh that it seems to be eternal. Quote, Why, O God, have you abandoned us forever? Your wrath smolders against the flock you should tend. The torment of being conquered and losing the temple is compounded by the overall sense of abandonment. Quote, Our own signs we did not see. There is no longer a prophet nor any among us who knows until when. The people, though, remember a time when God was not so aloof, a time when God was active in history and in nature and flexed divine muscle. Quote, you shattered the sea god with your strength. You smashed the monster's heads on the waters. You crushed the leviathan's heads. You gave him as food to the desert folk. You split open a channel for spring and brook. You dried up the surging torrents. Yours is the day. Also, yours is the night. It was you who founded the light and the sun. And so the people remind God to remember the promise and the pact and fight on the people's behalf. And on that hopeful note, here endeth the lesson. Though Psalm 72 makes quite an impression for its magisterial tone, brimming with acclaim for the king, one can't also help but think that the poet is merely currying favor flattering and praising a powerful man to massage the monarch's ego while the poet maintains his position in the hierarchy of power. In other words, it's kind of ass-kissy. And the thing is, the men whose asses are being kissed can't see through the flattery for what it is. I guess that's what happens when you ascend to the high throne. But it's not like no one's ever thought about the difference between flattery and friendship. The Greek moralist Plutarch wrote a how-to about this exact problem in the 2nd century CE. His essay, How to Tell a Flatterer from a Friend, is very clear-eyed. He sketches the ass-kisser and the target in great detail. The target is so filled with self-love, his judgment is impaired. This is the opening the ass-kisser needs and seizes upon. Because, as Plutarch writes, quote, Everybody is himself his own foremost and greatest flatterer. All the ass-kisser has to do is second the motion and celebrate the target's own self-flattery. The ass-kisser begins to take the shape of the target's desire, transforming themselves utterly to inhabit a, quote, life not of his own choosing, but another's, molding and adapting himself to suit another. The thing is, friendship also makes this process possible. Friends also sometimes change to suit their peers. They share tastes. They share dispositions. The ass-kisser is aware of this. They take all the things the friends do, being useful, being attentive, and they pile it on. But the one thing the ass-kisser doesn't do is worry about the character of their target. They might point out minor issues or faults, virtue signaling that they care about virtues, but at the same time, they'll leave the broader, more fundamental issues or faults untouched. That's ultimately not the ass-kisser's concern. Though the damage to the target is clear, the ass-kisser also damages the community because their behavior undermines the very institution of friendship. If someone can pretend to be a friend and pass so effectively, is any friend to be trusted? Couldn't anyone be an ass-kisser in disguise? It is perhaps for this reason that Dante placed two flatterers in a lower circle of hell than mass murderers. When I think of insidious ass-kissers, two individuals come to mind. One comes from fiction, and the other, sadly, is all too real. I'm referring to Iago, 
Othello's most profound frenemy. Shakespeare provides a masterclass in weaponized askissery. Sir, content you. In following him, I follow but myself. As the audience, we see how Iago ingratiates, subverts, and destroys, while Othello doesn't, because we as the audience are privy to Iago's dealings and true thoughts. We see Iago's every fraud, every hypocrisy, every deceit, and we see the price paid by Othello and the people closest to him. And the thing is, even if Othello had read Plutarch and followed his recommendations to the letter, there would be no way for him to expose Iago. Othello is no passive victim, but Iago could pass even the most cunning test of friendship. When Iago begins to cast aspersions on Othello's wife Desdemona, he stages a series of frank responses to information drawn from Othello about her relations with his lieutenant Michael Cassio. And yet, Iago hesitates, repeating Othello's own words, reluctant to pursue the topic, to which Othello challenges, quote, By heaven he echoes me. As if there was a monster in his thought too hideous to be shown. That does mean something. Othello continues. And for I know thou art full of love and honesty, and waste thy words before thou givest them breath. Therefore these stops of thine fright me the more. <laughs> in other words, Othello can't determine if Iago is sincere or fake. And when Othello confronts Iago with a threat of violence, Iago takes offense. Oh, Grace! Oh, heaven, defend me. Are you a man? Have you a soul or sense? Oh, monstrous world, take note, take note. To be direct and honest is not safe. I thank you for this, prophet, and from hence I'll love no friend, since love breeds such offense. The truth teller is always hated, even if the truth teller is faking. Even as a young graduate student at Harvard School of Government, Henry Kissinger had a reputation not for truth-telling, but for kissing ass. So much so that fellow students playing off Kissinger's middle initial A called him Henry Ass Kissinger. If only that nickname had ruined his career. Alas, it did not. And as Secretary of State in the Nixon administration, Kissinger took his ass-kissing to a whole new level. Though having fled Nazi Germany as a teenager, he happily worked for an avowed anti-Semite. And it's not like Nixon kept his opinions to himself. A flurry of articles were written in late 2013 when the Nixon Library digitized and released an additional 250 hours of presidential recordings, revealing, quelle surprise, that Nixon was a racist and an anti-Semite. And at the time, when the release was so new and exciting, I alluded to these recordings in episode 32 in the context of Nixon wanting to know exactly how many Jews were in his government so he could keep an eye on them. But this wasn't all he had to say about Jews. He argued that all Jews have an inferiority complex, which motivates them to overcompensate, or he was considering amnesty for draft dodgers who left the USA for Canada rather than fabricate stories about bone spurs, but decided not to give them amnesty because he thought most of them were Jews. Interesting side note, if you look up all those articles in the Atlantic or the New York Times or Washington Post or Slate and follow the links to all the damning audio at the Nixon Library, you will find them all conveniently missing. Page not found. They haven't been deleted or removed. Just refiled so it's much more difficult to access them. You can't just do a search for Nixon and Jews and see what comes up. You have to know which conversation in specific he went off and look it up directly. 
I've included a link to the 2013 Atlantic article, and you can click over and see for yourself. None of this seemed to bother Kissinger. In fact, as one infamous recording revealed, after a meeting with Golda Meir in 1973, then Prime Minister of Israel, Meir had implored Nixon to ask the Russian government to allow more Soviet Jews to emigrate to avoid persecution. Nixon, intent on detente with the Russians, sought to avoid the request. Kissinger told his boss, quote, The emigration of Jews from the Soviet Union is not an objective of American foreign policy, and if they put Jews into gas chambers in the Soviet Union, it's not an American concern, maybe a humanitarian concern. I know, Nixon responded, we can't blow up the world because of it. Wow. So, when the poet waxes rhapsodic about Shlomo, is the stream of flattery and magisterial imagery meant to ingratiate and ultimately undermine? Or is it just garden-variety hyperbole, the kind you offer to a powerful person to lubricate a fleeting social situation? You know, the king is walking by and you say, may your name be forever as long as the sun, may your name bear seed, you know, stuff like that. This is courtly poetry, after all. It traffics as a genre in ass-kissery, so... Any king or queen worth their salt would see right through it, especially Shlomo, who, granted one wish from God, asked and received wisdom so he could rule justly. And he'd be able to do what Plutarch demanded and Othello couldn't accomplish. That is, determine definitively if the poet is a friend or just a base flatterer. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 172, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 75 through 78.